0: Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I intend to pick up today with some of the ideas that Elder Phelan set before us last week. He kind of opened up the subject of how do we as Christians relate to Israel, right? And with all the stuff going on in the Middle East right now, There's an awful lot of stuff floating around on social media and in the news outlets. And there are very uh, stridently held positions by Christians that kind of cover the gamut, no matter where you might fall on the continuum of who you want to support in all of that. And I thought it was very helpful that Elder Phelan kind of took us through the Bible and looked at just some simple observations about who the nation of Israel is, the covenant they had with God, the fact that that covenant came to an end, in 70 AD. And that may have bearings on how you feel about the matter of Israel as a nation in our time. Uh, So I thought that was very helpful. But today I want to talk about two things uh, kind of in that same realm. The first is Abrahamic faith, the faith of Abraham. And then I want to move to the topic of spiritual Israel. When you read the Old Testament, and you see this story of Israel. Paul said those things were written as in samples to us. What that means is that the things you see going on in Israel have application in the life of a New Testament Christian. Now, they had a different religious world, so to speak. They had a different covenant of worship. They were required to do things in a very different way than we are, though they had the same God. They just didn't have as much revealed to them. And the order of worship they had and the the manner of worship was really intended to depict in type and shadow the things that the church would have and would understand as a result of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the New Testament. So if you can think about the things in the Old Testament as being more or less sort of allegorical depictions of what Christ would come to do, they had reference to that. They're types and shadows. These are you know stories that in some ways mirror and illustrate things that Christ would come to do and that we now have in the fullness of time with the ministry of Christ. We no longer worship in types and shadows. We have the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, right? Who took on our sins. We know this. We have a, a much closer affiliation with the truth through the New Testament. I know many of you are going to have family come in for Christmas. You're going to see a lot of family, some of the family you haven't seen in a while. Though you may on your mantle have pictures of those family members that remind you things about them. You might look at it. We've got one at we were talking about refreshing some of the pictures at my in-laws' house because the pictures they have of our children, their grandchildren, are kind of outdated. Like Andrew's about this tall and he's holding a basketball and stuff. I mean, he doesn't look anything like that anymore. So we're thinking about, I'm revealing some Christmas presents that we're coming up with for my family. So don't tell anybody. But we were talking about refreshing these pictures. And as you look at those pictures, you're reminded of some impression of who that person is. But just as you would rather have the personal company of that individual, as opposed to the picture on your mantle. The New Testament church is the reality of what Christ has done, and it's far better than just the images and depictions of it that occurred in the Old Testament. You see that? In other words, if you had your choice of sitting around the fireplace at Christmas with a bunch of pictures of your family that you could look at and recall the memories, or having them actually there in the fullness of their presence catching up with them, knowing what's going on, and experiencing the joy of their presence, clearly we know which one of those we would choose, right? And so likewise, God's people having the fullness of revelation before them of who Jesus Christ is, we should much rather prefer the New Testament church to what saints in the Old Testament had. Sometimes I think Christians have this thing, well, they were back then they were having all these miracles and stuff. Wouldn't it be great if we had these miracles going on around us? You know, maybe that somehow that was more spiritual for them to be experiencing this than what we have today, which is codified in a book and in these sorts of services. But if you really think about that, consider again, these things were written as in samples to you. What was the repeated reaction of Israel to those miraculous things? Just- Unbelief. Mm-hmm. Time and again. How can you be miraculously delivered with all these signs and wonders from Egypt, the greatest nation in the world, under these incredible circumstances, and just a short time later, you're out there saying, well, we just wish we were back in Egypt eating cucumbers, is what they said. Well, I don't understand that at all. I don't even like cucumbers. But I guess if you're in the desert and you're starving and things are rough, that looks pretty good. How can you go from that to a place where you just say, I don't think God can deliver us anymore in such a short period of time? It tells us something about the hardness of men's hearts and how even God's people can be faithless at times. And so the things we find in the Old Testament teach us something about ourselves. Those people were no different than we are today. They had different amounts of revelation and at times different sorts of revelation. But what we have today in the Lord's New Testament church is far better. Now we look back at Abraham's faith starting in chapter 12 of Genesis. And we find, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing and I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. So we see this person, Abram, who became Abraham, and God is speaking to him. Here's a guy that's sitting in a place called Ur, an idolatrous and pagan place there ain't any gospel preachers wandering around. There's no gospel meetings, gospel singings. There's no thing going on in the domain of conventional religion that came along and swept him up into their caravan or movement. This is God interacting directly with someone he wants to have a conversation with and calling him to do something. Now, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Abram left and obeyed God here And he did it by faith. That is an incredible observation in the Bible. Somehow, Abram had faith. And it didn't come from a gospel messenger or a gospel preacher. It came from God. It affirms faith is the gift of God. The New Testament says that and Abram depicts it. He's sitting in the middle of a pagan idolatrous generation. And somehow... God has given him faith because he had faith sufficient to obey the command of God to leave the place where he was. That sounds an awful lot like what we teach and what we believe is that God gives men faith and there is no impediment between God and man. He gives it to whomever he wants, he knows those he's going to give it to, and he succeeds in giving it to them irrespective of their location, either in space or time, compared to the location of what we would call conventional gospel ministry. You see that? That is what we teach here. No minister has ever stood in this pulpit has ever been instrumental in giving anyone faith. If we've ever accomplished anything among God's people, it is that we have said something that was true, such that those who have the faith to receive it heard it and said, that's the truth. That's all we've ever done. That's all we can hope to do. In fact, gospel ministry is utterly dependent on God's preceding work of having given a man faith so that he could hear and value something said of a spiritual nature. Well, you're saying, why do you make such a big deal out of the fact that Abram left by faith? He left and obeyed God here by faith. Why are you making such a big deal out of that? We all agree with that. Well, it comes up. If you turn a couple of pages, look over at Genesis 15. Oftentimes people ask us, why do you make such a big deal about primitive Baptists are not Calvinists? And this is one of the reasons why. If you kind of want to get into that matter, you seem so close. You both believe tulip and it seems like you believe you agree on a lot of things. Well, we do agree on some things. We we probably agree with them on more things than we do many others in Christendom. So we should admit that. They have some embracing of election and predestination, and we have different ways of understanding those things, but they don't reject election and predestination like a lot of Christian groups do. So there's some similarities. Maybe they're a little closer to us in some respect. But here's one of the places where we kind of part company. Remember, Abram left Ur by faith. Amen? That's Hebrews, teaches us that. Chapter 15 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. This is kind of an incredible promise when you consider Abram's natural state. This would be like, really? That sounds pretty incredible. Well, it is going to be incredible. It's a miraculous promise that's being made here. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. By the way, the answer to that, can you number the stars? The answer to that is no, I cannot number them. That means none of us know how many, exactly how many are going to be in heaven. We can't even see all the stars with the natural eye. Right? You can't see all of God's children with the natural eye either. But God knows who they are. But He says, thou be able to number them. He said unto him, so shall thy seed be. Well, He's talking to Abraham. And He's not talking about the nation of israel right now there is reference here there's obviously a natural family that's going to come out of abraham right we know that's true again that's the picture that depicts a spiritual reality that we now have in the fullness of time in the lord's ministry and in the new testament you see that So yes, there is a nation that is going to arise from Abram's loins, so to speak. And that is a natural promise made to Abraham. But there's a spiritual message going on here. And that natural fulfillment depicts a much greater spiritual truth. You see that? When he's talking about this group, so shall thy seed be, he's talking about the people who are God's people. He's talking about spiritual Israel. By the way, Old Baptists at times get accused of, well, y'all think it's us us four and no more is what y'all preach. You think you're the only ones going to heaven because you're so particular about what you believe doctrinally. That means you think you're the only ones that are right and you're the only ones that's going to heaven. Totally false. I've never heard an Old Baptist Say that. I've heard a lot of Calvinists talk that way, but I've never heard an old Baptist. If anything, I would say old Baptists tend to err on the side of thinking everybody's going to heaven. And that's, that's where their problem lies more than anything else. You know, the Bible says, Behold the goodness and severity of God. And sometimes maybe we are apt to think of His goodness and turn a blind eye towards His severity. But the reality is, we believe as Abram believed, as Abraham believed. Which is this promise? So shall thy seed be. There is going to be a great host in heaven. That tells anyone with any amount of sense, anyone who has the most basic mathematics skills, would have to affirm that that means there's going to be more people in heaven than just primitive Baptists. Amen. 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 So I want us to know this: you can be standing in the truth. You can have people say, well, that means you think it's us four and no more, and that's what y'all teach, and that's not true. You can know this truth, but knowing this truth is not the thing that gets you into heaven, right? It's the promise that gets people into heaven. You see, that's what God promised He would do that's going to deliver anyone to heaven. That's why there could be a multitude which no man can number, is how Revelation puts it, right? That's why it could be that. So shall thy seed be. And verse 6, and he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now this is the verse that is often raised up among Calvinists as the demonstration of justification by faith. You see that? And what they mean by that is something along the lines of man is not eternally justified before the throne of divine justice until he exercises faith towards God as Abraham did in this moment. That's what they mean by it. A man must believe actively and ably some truth like this, and only at that moment is he justified before God. You see that? That's kind of what they mean when you hear Calvin is speaking about justification by faith. Now, what's the problem with that? It goes back to Genesis 12, doesn't it? Hebrews says, That Abram obeyed God when he departed Ur, and he did that by faith. That means Abram, three chapters earlier, was already a man who had faith. Genesis 15-6 cannot possibly be the moment that he became eternally justified before God because he believed something God told him. It can't possibly be that because he already had faith before. He was already a regenerate man. You see that? Had to be the case. That completely obliterates the typical Calvinistic view of justification by faith. We believe in justification by faith. The Bible teaches it. However, we don't believe that it means man must exercise faith in order to obtain a state of justification before God where God says you're not guilty now. You said I believe, now I'm going to say you're not guilty. We don't believe that. We believe that justification by faith designs the idea that when you believe gospel truth, the promises of God, you in your conscience come to know that is why I stand righteous before God. It's not because you exercise faith that you became justified. It's because Christ did something that made you justified, and you believing that puts you in contact with it in your experience. That's when you say, now I see what was done, and I believe it, and I have some understanding of it. Now, there's depths of that truth that will never plumb. Why on earth would God choose to do that for a bunch of worthless sinners like us? That one we'll spend all eternity plumbing the depths of, I'm sure. But we can affirm that God declared that this is what happens. You see, the gospel comes to people as a declaration of justification. It is not an offer of justification. If you'll believe me, then you'll be justified. That is not the gospel. And by the way, that's the nature of the gospel preached in much of the broader Christian world. If you will believe, then you'll be justified. It's that kind of warped view of justification by faith. The gospel comes in and says, Jesus Christ has done a finished work. His people are justified by His blood. And those who believe it can now enter into the joy of that declaration in their experience. And they can respond in the way that is appropriate, their reasonable service, which is I'm going to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm going to live my life in a way that is now consistent with serving Him and His church and knowing what He has done for me. See that? It's a pretty big difference. But the key thing I want to point out here is over in Romans 4. So turn over there for a minute. So Paul takes up the matter of Abram in Romans chapter 4, He provides some analysis of this. By the way, you all just turned in your Bibles. I heard some turning going on out there. There's a lot of change that took place in those pages you turn. We went from the very early part of the Bible to now we're in the New Testament. A whole lot has happened between then and now. We've gone from types and shadows and God talking to Abram and looking at stars in the heaven and talking about seed and all this sort of stuff. It seems somewhat cryptic unusual it's indirect in some ways now we're living in the reality of jesus christ the messiah has come he has borne the sins of his people they now stand justified on that basis and we're in the gospel age where we're telling people about that it's no longer a mystery how these people are going to be justified right a christian person should not be in the state of job who's saying i know it's so of a truth but how should man be justified?" you know what i'm saying Job was back there living in those types of shadows. He was kind of like Abram in many respects. No gospel preachers running around him. He's out there. He's clearly a child of God. Doesn't have access to nearly as much information as we have in the Bible today. And he knows somehow in his heart, he knows, I I know based on my relationship with God, I know things are going to be okay between me and God ultimately. I don't know how. I know God is faithful. I know that's going to come to pass. But in the New Testament era, we should not be dwelling in that place of ignorance where Job was. We know how. The Gospel tells us how. The Son of God took on flesh, bore your sins on Calvary's cross, and put them away as far as the east is from the west. And that's how it happened. Those who believe it are justified. And it's not because you believe it that justified you. It was true whether you believed it or not, and you believing it only puts you in contact with the truth. You see that? Believing something never makes it so. But if you believe the truth, you can enter into the joy of knowing that it is so. You see that? Chapter 4, Paul kind of starts an analysis here. And I want to look about the first 10 verses here. What shall we say then that Abram, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. But not before God. Now, look, the entire religion of the Old Covenant, if you will, has to do with the law that was given and maintaining the law. The primary lesson of the Old Testament is simply this man cannot keep the law. The entire Old Testament, if you were to dig up the themes that come out of the Old Testament, one of the primary themes of the Old Testament is man is fallen and depraved and incapable of rising to God's standard. I've heard people say, you know, the people in the Old Testament, they were saved by keeping the law, but now we're saved by believing on Jesus. You have not understood the lesson at all. I would argue whether you've even read the Old Testament if you think that's what it says, because the testimony of the Old Testament is... Wayward people, not keeping the law, falling away, not doing what God said, over and over and over again. And to those of you who say, well, if I'd had the miracles. No. No. It wouldn't have made any difference. You have the same carnal heart and inclinations that those people did. And had you been at the Red Sea with an encroaching Egyptian army, you would have been just as inclined to say, oh, wish we were back there eating cucumbers. That's the way you would have been. That's what this is intended to teach you. Your inability to rise to God's standard. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. You can't do it. You never could do it. And so that covenant is not going to land anybody in glory. If you think those people were saved because they kept God's law, they weren't. They didn't keep God's law. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not how anyone ever got to heaven. And yet the keeping of the law is required for you to get into heaven. Now that's a puzzle, isn't it? So none of them can keep the law, and yet it's going to have to be kept. How's that going to work out? You're going to need an intercessor. You're going to need someone who's going to keep the law on your behalf, and who's going to put your sins away. That's what Jesus Christ came to do, and that's what He accomplished, and that's what New Testament Christianity teaches. Verse 3, For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt." But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Faith is said to be an evidence of things not seen. You see that? It's a receipt. It's a piece of evidence. Someone who has evidence, if you have a receipt, we're doing a lot of Christmas shopping right now. I've got about 50 receipts in my wallet from all the things I've bought. I've got the receipt. It is a proof of a prior transaction. You see that? And that's kind of how faith is. Faith is a receipt of some transaction that took place before. And there's at least two of them that come to mind in, um, or actually three, I would say, in the New Testament era. The first is one transaction that took place. One of these things not seen of which faith is evidence is your regeneration. Because you had to be regenerate to have faith. So faith is an evidence that you've been regenerated. That's one of the things not seen. In our time, you could say it's also an evidence of Christ at Calvary who bought that as a covenant blessing for me. It's an evidence of that as well. It's an evidence of your election because only the elect are given that blessing. So those are three things that none of us saw of which faith is an evidence. You see that? So when you talk about this righteousness being imputed, you're talking about Abram, bringing forth the evidence of faith in his life, that he is one of those that Psalm 32, 2 says, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. That's what it's saying, right? There's people from eternity past that God said, I know these people are going to fall into sin, but they're my chosen children. And I'm not going to impute their sins to them. I'm imputing them to Christ. And he's going to deal with them. And His righteousness is going to be imputed to them. Your faith was not the deciding factor in that. That's what the justification by faith Calvinist group says. Your faith was kind of like the light switch that turned that on and made it a reality. That's not the truth. Your faith is merely something that allowed you to see that reality. It's a receipt. It's an evidence of things not seen. Namely, that you're a child of God. See that? So... It goes on to say, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. That's the Psalm 32.2 reference that I just made there. Saying, blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. That's Paul quoting Psalm 32.2, kind of putting it in his own words there, but with the same meaning. Right? The blessing is that God had decided long ago there's going to be some people in this world who are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Their sins are never going to be counted against them. Right. It's not, I'm going to make it so that that's possible provided they'll do something. That's just another workspace system. Right? When you do that, you've just turned faith into a work. That's not how it works. Faith is an evidence of things not seen. Your prior regeneration, your Representation at Calvary by Christ and your election before the foundation of the world. So, verse 9: Cometh this blessing upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? Now, this is a reference to: Are you in this covenant yet? This Old Testament covenant? In their time, circumcision and uncircumcision was largely speaking of Jews and Gentiles. But in this instance, he's really talking about the specifics of Abram's entering into this covenant, which was signified by circumcision. And he says, For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. See? I think Paul's identifying a potential Jewish loophole here. They would say, oh yeah, we hear you, Paul. We hear what you're saying about this grace matter. But he still had to get circumcised, right? That's the thing he had to do. Everybody's looking for the thing you got to do. Paul's saying this grace was given to him before he did the thing that God asked him to do. You see that? It's just like how he left Ur. He had to have the grace of God on his life such that he would have faith so that he could leave Ur by faith and obey God. See that? It had to happen before that. This is really the primary error that many in Christendom make today. They're trying to hinge everything on what man does at some point. And if you listen to most people's testimonies, it's like, well, I did this and then I gave my life to Jesus. Look, I don't want to rain on that sentiment. I think it's great that people feel like I want to present my body a living sacrifice. I want to offer up my life to God. I think that's a wonderful sentiment, but it is a theologically confusing notion it's not really a proper depiction of reality right it's kind of like a child going to their father when they're you know one year old and they can just now say dada and they and somehow they think i made you my father because i finally called you my dada and the father would look at them if they they could express that sort of thing you know you would look at your child and say that's really not how it works you know we were thinking about you long before you were even born. We've been making plans for you. We've been taking care of you when you didn't know anything. you just lying there like a blob making messes everywhere. <laughs> That's how God's children are too. And so I, I understand in one sense this idea of I'm going to build my Christianity by looking out in my world and, and, and seeing my own personal experiences of faith and then trying to kind of build the story based on that. But your experiences are not a trustworthy guide in such things. And there's things in your spiritual life that occurred before you had any sensibility of them, else you would have had no spiritual life to have those sensibilities. It works the same way in your natural life. I'm sure my mother has memories of holding me the moment I came out of her womb. I have no recollection of such a thing. Now that was part of my natural life. I'm sure there are many people that are still around today who could tell me about instances that occurred in my natural life that I have no natural recollection of whatsoever, but I was naturally alive at that moment, irrespective of the fact that I had no cognition of it. See that? People's spiritual lives can work in very much the same way. I suspect if you examine many people's testimonies about how God was working in their life and they didn't, there'll be something of, "Well, you know, I felt really guilty and I knew I hadn't been doing this or that. I, I wasn't going to church, I wasn't reading the Bible, I wasn't doing these things. And then the Lord was working on me and then I decided I needed to go to church and then you, they keep going and at some point they get baptized or they join the church or they do something, pray the sinner's prayer and then they say, right there, at that moment that's when I was eternally saved and going forward. I understand that from the point of trying to make sense of it as an experience. But what was all that stuff that happened before you did the thing that got you eternally saved? Either that stuff was done in unregeneracy, it was insincere, you didn't really believe it because you didn't have faith. It was either something like that, which why would you even tell people about it if that's the case? Or perhaps what the Bible teaches is that there's a difference between being born again and being converted. There's a distinction between regeneration and conversion. Regeneration is a work that God does. He may do it for many people. The Bible talks about people being born again in the womb. That's very early. The other people are born again, I think it's some time before they start to realize the manifestations of that. I think in that testimony that I kind of framed up there for you, if someone who's having that sort of experience, I think it's likely that they were born again quite some time before they ever got in the waters of baptism or prayed the sinner's prayer or anything like that. But they're trying to assess the world through what religion has told them. And religion will tell them that's when you got saved. right? That's when you got eternally saved. That's when you were born again. That's what religion, Christian religion, will tell them in most quarters. But what we're telling you is just like with Abraham sitting over there in Ur not looking for God any more than anything, God enters into people's lives and starts changing the way they think. And so all that conviction and stuff that went on beforehand, all those thoughts and all those, you know, I know I'm not good enough, and all that reality, that realization of that you're a sinner, all that stuff was part of your spiritual life. See, God did something and He didn't need any of our help to do it. Amen. That's just how it is. So. I'm thankful for that. And this is why it's so important that Paul makes the case that, look, Abraham, it's not like the Old Testament saints, they had one flavor of faith, and the New Testament saints got another flavor of faith. That ain't how it works. It worked just the same in Abraham's day. The real difference is how much information they had on what I call the gospel mechanics of how they were eternally saved. You got a lot more information. When I was a kid, you get your car fixed, and you take it down to a place, and the guy would come out, and he'd tell you, well, it's this, that, wrong with it, you know. Or maybe they don't even explain it very well, and they just say it's going to be $300, and you, you pay them, and, and that's kind of how it's done. I didn't have a whole lot of information, and sometimes the guy explaining it what, you know, didn't have much to tell me about it to give me a sense of what was really wrong. But you just go with it. You hope it's okay. In recent years, when you take your car into some places, at least places in Little Rock, they send you a video And like the mechanic is standing there and he's like, okay, you see this CV boot right here? It's torn. You see all this oil it's throwing around here? Now, you're probably going to have to replace that pretty soon. And over here, we see that your radiator has a pinhole leak right here. And you see, i got a lot more information to work with when a mechanic is showing me that. And I can really enter into something about the mechanics of what's going on with my car when I see that explicit of a picture. The New Testament is that sort of explicit picture for God's people. It shows you specifically what Christ has done. It shows you something about the damage and what needed to be repaired, and it shows you that Christ has repaired that. So it's important to note, we have the same faith as Abraham, but we have access to different levels of information in the New Testament era. Skip down to verse 23. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also. You see that? These Old Testament examples are applicable to us. You're supposed to see that. You're supposed to make that connection that, hey, it worked the same way in Abram's day as it does in our time. God found me in a waste howling wilderness, just like he found Jacob, right? I mean, these things work in the same way. And we need to believe what God has done in our lives based on the testimony of Scripture, not based on just whatever we've seen through our own experiences. If I were to measure the distance of my life in time based on experience, I'd be a couple of years younger than I am right now. Do you see that? I only have recollections that start maybe when I was about two years old or so, maybe a little early. But that's not an accurate measure of my life. See that? So it is with your spiritual life. Unless you see that God does something in advance of any of that, you won't understand really fully what you've done. And by the way, you might say, well, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with someone believing that the moment they asked Jesus into their heart, they got born again? Well, it's wrong so there's that there's just that issue but you say well, what difference does it make maybe it's kind of the sentiment and i i think that's a fair question i think it's one that a lot of people ask what difference does it make well one of the differences it makes is it plants in the minds of men the subtle idea that there's the thing you have to do to get eternally saved that's right. That's right. so once you've accepted that notion as a child of god Errant though it is, you have created an avenue for exploitation in the world of religion. Because now someone comes along and says, Yeah, I know they said you've got to be baptized to get born again. But they're not right. You really have to take the sacraments from our church to be born again. And by the way, you were baptized in the wrong way. So we've got a different thing that you've got to do. And there's a bunch of different things, right? It creates an instability in the lives of many Christians that has them questioning, well, okay, I've accepted the premise that I had to do something, right? So now I'm looking at what? Am I looking at Christ? Never mind Christ. They think Christ did this whole thing that's available to anybody. It really comes down to me and have I done the right things? And now everybody's questioning whether or not the thing I did was the right thing to do. And this is why you see people bouncing around in religion a lot going from place to place because they get told one thing and they bounce around to another thing. All the while, they're looking introspectively at themselves and saying, did I do enough to be eternally saved? And what I'm telling you is you can never do enough to be eternally saved. The best day of your life, you never paid for one single sin. Right? All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's what it's talking about here. You can't pay for a sin. So if you're looking at yourself and what things you did, you're looking at the wrong place. You are totally impoverished spiritually. you got nothing to pay with. That's what the gospel actually teaches. So the irony of this when you say, well, what difference does it make if people believe that? The core matter is this, and this is unpleasant to confront, but I want to say it very plainly. The core matter is this. People who believe that have not Heard and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. They're still looking at something they need to do. I'm not saying they're not a child of God. I'm saying they've been taught something that is visiting great confusion into their lives. I can remember a a minister telling me one time. He would, you would talk about these sort of things. He would just say, "Yeah, just look to Christ." And I would think, "Well, what what does that even mean?" He would say that just, "You got to look to Christ." And it kind of dawns on you. Yeah, I see what you're saying now. Christ is the one who did the work. It's not us. All you ever see in us is some evidence that Christ has done a work. And it's going to be imperfect. We're going to have a lot of problems and things like that. But when you're experiencing that, you know you have a loving Father. You return to the Father. Keep going. Apologize. Move on with your sins. And then you look to Christ that's the perfect work. That's the only the perfect work that was ever done on your behalf was what Christ did. That's why you have to look to Christ and not to what you did. So this was uh, written not only for Him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on Him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. There is a real deliverance that comes in the life of a child of God by believing gospel truth. It doesn't effectuate the work of Christ. Many in Christendom teach this kind of idea that you're almost the President of the United States and God is kind of like Congress and He's put up a bill that says Jesus died for your sins and you get to either sign it into law or veto it. And that's not how it works at all. It doesn't work that way. But believing what has been done on your behalf visits great joy into your life. And that's why he starts chapter 5. Uh, it's, let me do 25. Um, Who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. You see, Christ was raised for your justification. And that means it's a finished work. If Christ is raised, God's people are justified. See that? And it doesn't require your faith in order to ratify that justification. However, when your faith embraces that declaration, you can enter into the joy and peace of it. And for that reason, he starts chapter five, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we know it and experience it in the gospel era. You see that? This talking about spiritual Israel, let's turn over to chapter nine and maybe we finish up here. He makes this statement. A cautionary word on this is, this is very basic, plain Christianity being taught here. This notion of spiritual Israel, but we're living in such hostile times, and it seems religious hostility is on the rise. There are many people who would regard just preaching what Paul says here as anti-Semitism. I'm just putting that out there very plainly. There are some people who so emphasize the current nation of Israel and exalt it to the status of God's people on this earth, that someone suggesting that the real Israel of God is what the Apostle Paul said it was, that they would say, well, that's against Israel for you to say that. Just telling you that's a warning out there. What's happening is we're beginning to see boundaries marked between various religious groups that for some time have kind of been playing nice with each other. But there's some signs that this is not really going on anymore. And this is one of the areas where you might receive some hostility from some folks. But I'm just going to give it to you straight out of Romans 9. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. By the way, Paul was a Jew. Okay, so let's let's get that before our eyes. He has a lot of experience in this. He's going to talk about that. That I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now you think he didn't love his Jewish brethren. He's talking about his natural kinsmen, his Jewish family, if you will, that surrounded him. He's talking about his (laughs) brothers and sisters familially. He had a great love for them and wanted to see them converted. Who are Israelites, he's talking about national Israel, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. He's saying, look, these people had a lot from God. Can't deny that. Whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forevermore. Amen. Now he's talking about Jesus Christ came out of the lineage of this national Israel here. Right. He loves these people. Verse six, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. That verse right there has massive explanatory ramifications in this world today. The true Israel of God, as taught in the Bible, is God's elect family. It has nothing to do with ethnic Jewish people. It doesn't have anything to do with the physical descendants of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. It has to do with the spiritual descendants of them, those who have the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When people might come to you and say, do you support Israel? Well, I can tell you one thing. You could definitely say you should support the spiritual Israel of God. I am totally in support of that. The matter of the nation of Israel today is a much more complicated political matter. By the way, just in the interest of tickling that a little bit, I believe that what occurred back in October, I think the nation of Israel has the right to defend itself. And I think they were attacked in that there's a kind of a notion out there now however that is if you're not willing to endorse any and everything that israel wants to do that therefore you're anti-semitic that's a little bit too much for me so there is a nation of israel there's a very complicated situation over there let's just put it that way it's very complicated I think they have the right to defend themselves. I don't see how anything other than some sort of a two-state solution like we have today where they're going to have to figure out how to play nice with each other is really going to be feasible, but I don't think there are any good evident solutions to resolving that matter over there. And really primarily where I'm going with this is I'm not sanguine about the notion of our children going over there and getting wrapped up in the midst of a bunch of stuff like that. That's where I'm coming from personally. I'm preaching that from the Bible. But I'm saying it's a very complex, unpleasant political matter over there. And you should not be of the notion that because you are a Christian, you must support the nation of Israel in every single thing that they ever do. I just don't believe that. So... Say that just to clarify, let so you know kind of where I'm coming from on it. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Maybe I'll just end on this. I've had a few other points I want to make, but I know I'm coming up on time. The nation of Israel, as it was known in the Old Testament, so to speak, really ceased to exist in 70 A.D. It was utterly destroyed. Prior to that time, if you were a Jewish person, they had records there that could that could show you your family heritage. Those people could trace themselves back you know, to the patriarchs and whatnot. All of that was destroyed. So even the ability to demonstrate that someone is a Jew in the way that someone would have in the time of Christ has been obliterated. Correct. So this verse is saying, They are not all Israel which are of Israel. It's simply saying this, There's a couple of things I would draw out of that. First of all, it's broadly taught among some groups in Christianity that if you are a a national Israelite, you're one of God's people from the Old Covenant and you're going to heaven as a result of it. That is not true. If that was true, it would have to say quite the opposite. They which are of Israel are all of Israel, right? Right. That's what it would have to say. It would have to say, if you are a national Israelite, you're already in spiritual Israel. It's saying not every Israelite is an elect child of God. Okay? That's a simple Christian fact that's plainly declared in the Bible. But I'm telling you this, there will be people who will say that declaration of Paul is anti-Semitism. Because we believe all the national Israelites, we're all God's children. You see that? So I'm just pointing out there's some strident differences here between Judaism and Christianity. Maybe we've become so familiar over the years of people talking about the Judeo-Christian society that we have that we've lost sight of the fact that there's a huge difference between modern Judaism and Christianity. And it hinges around the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And who is He? For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. He's talking about spiritual Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. That is incredibly plain and it is Christianity. It doesn't mean you hate Jewish people. This whole chapter started with Paul talking about how much he loved his Jewish brethren and wanted to see them converted to the truth. It's not anti Semitic, it's just the truth of God. God's family has members of all nations, kindred, tongues, and people, right? It's not just Jewish people. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. You see that? That's God's people. That's spiritual Israel. That is the Israel you are a member of. That's the Israel that the nation of Israel in the Old Testament depicted. It was a shadow or a picture. The way God acted towards the nation of Israel depicted something about how He was going to be towards His covenant people, spiritual Israel. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.